it's Monday night, and welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. This is the podcast for people who don't just talk about the Empire Strikes Back, but actually strike back against the Empire. Today, we're talking about the newest Star Wars movie, Solo, a Star Wars movie. Um, I, I really liked what my frequent co-host, although uh, not present with me on the show tonight, uh, Brett had to say about the movie as an overview. So I'm just going to read the first paragraph from his review which you can read at graphicpolicy.com, Brett said. We've all heard the rumors and know the reality that Solo, a Star Wars story, the latest entry into the yearly Star Wars movie release schedule, was a full-on production disaster. Directors were replaced, rumors of actors unable to do the basics and in need of coaches, a script that was a mess. With all of that, you'd expect what has wound up on the screen to be an utter disaster. But that's the farthest thing from reality. Solo, a Star Wars story, is actually pretty fun. Is it high art? No. Is it as good as the original trilogy? No. But it's a solid popcorn film that has enough new and enough winks and nods to make Star Wars fans and non-fans happy. So that was Brett's take. Um, and I feel like it was a reasonable discussion starting point. Uh, I am your host today, Ilana Levin, a.k.a. Ilana Brooklyn. Um, and join me pitch hitting after a moment of emergency and crisis is p- podcast regular Stephen Adwell. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Well, it was a dark time in the universe, so. Exactly. And these kinds of things are just known to happen in a dark timeline. Um, Stephen Adwell writes about the intersection of history, politics, and pop culture in the people's history of the Marvel Universe for graphic policy. In his day job, he teaches public policy at, at CUNY, City University of New York. Murphy Institute for Labor Studies. He is the founder of Race for the Iron Throne, which is definitely the blog to go to if you want to know who Iron Man supports in Game of Thrones. But that's another story for another episode, perhaps. Um, And uh, where was I? Oh, yes. So, you know, I actually had a bit of a challenge putting together this episode. Uh, I really was, aside from the last minute cancellation situation, but um, I I wanted to uh, make sure that we had... Mm. You know, th- there was a specific thing that happens in the movie that I knew was a concern for a lot of women of color with respect to Star Wars. Um, you know, people were very excited that Sandy Newton was going to be in the movie, period, finally, like an actual significant black woman whose face you'll see on screen rather than just like Lupita Nyong'o, who was playing an alien. Um, you know, this is a disturbingly late last minute breakthrough for the movie series. Um, but a lot of people were really concerned about it. And to the point where uh, I actually knew most of the, the black women movie critics who I was friends with actually were not going to see the movie and had chosen not to see it. Um, and a number of the Latina film critics who I knew were not going to see it either. Um, so when I went to go look for uh, who was going to join me, I really went to try to find some voices who might be able to speak that. And a lot of people just were not interested in talking about the movie and didn't want to elevate it. And I think that that's a legitimate response. And I would certainly not tell somebody like, oh, it's your duty as a geek to see this. You have to see this. No, this is not like that at all. It's freaking Disney. See what you want to see. They don't need your money. Good Lord. Um, But I did just sort of want to point out that like, yeah, like there were a lot of people who were really concerned about this movie and, um, you know, not just for the reasons that, about uh, behind the scenes drama and things like that, which I think probably only matter to a narrow subset of like industry obsessives. Um, but uh, that, yeah, but there's a lot of people who, uh, I guess we'll go into spoilers now, who because the Val 
being killed, um, just don't want to support the movie or didn't even want to see it. And I sympathize with that. And I think it was a really bad mistake that the movie made. So putting a point on that, I mean, I definitely know, Stephen, you and I, after we saw the movie, like one of the first things I said to you was, they could have completely flipped it. They, Beckett could have died and Val could have lived and 80% of the script wouldn't have needed to change. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that you would really have needed to change is that Val had to be less hostile to, or a, at least a little bit less hostile to uh, Han starting out so that, you know, when it comes time for Han to actually join the crew that, um, you know, that it's, it's a believable change of heart. Yeah. I mean, my thing, I thought like there was a near the very, very end of the, uh, the fuel heist sequence before the betrayals. Um, there's a, a bit of a, there's a bit of a turn in which Beckett suddenly becomes funny. Uh, I don't really feel like he had been written as that till then. And I don't think that that would have made sense with Fandy, Fandy Newton's presentation, but like that was already when most of the role was done, you know, and I just thought it was so lazy and so freaking predictable to kill the black woman. It, it was just bullshit. It was just bullshit. And it would have been such a cool up, 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 um, upturning of audience expectations you know, I mean, she is a big star and he is bigger, but she's a big star. So it would not have been a problem in that way. Um, and we wouldn't have this like fridging of this character and we would have had more depth and more interest there. Like they really don't, they don't, they, there was just literally no reason to do it. Although they bullshit. would have had to, and you know, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think they would have had to uh, be a little bit careful with, you know, Han shooting Beckett down in cold blood at the end of the movie, do you think that would have played differently if he was shooting a black woman? I do think it would be different, but I think that there's ways they can address that. Um, yeah, I, mean, I was just thinking Han, it would have to be the time that Han. This is the time that Han shot first, right? But, he, yeah. but, but Beckett even says, like, well, I would have shot you. Um, I think that there's ways they could have made that work. And you know, I'm sure that people, some people would have been upset that she was being less than heroic, but like they're understandable. But the thing is, these are not characters who are an irrational, dumb, bad guys. These are characters who we understand why they do what they do. Um, it's not, I mean, it would have even given some more shades, I think, to her actions, frankly, in terms of her need to survive. Right. So I'm pissed about that. And I think a lot of people are too. Um, and I understand that that's an issue for a lot of people wanting to see the movie. I, I, you know, to the point where that really wasn't a frustration point for me overall. I will say the other thing that a lot of people are angry at is something that I did not know about until later, which is interesting. And you may not know this. I didn't know this until just the other day. So I actually thought Amelia Clark was excellent as Kira. I think we've learned as, you know, regular watchers of all the things Game of Thrones. So if there's one thing that Amelia Clark is really freaking good at is gazing lovingly at people and this <laughs> has this so much, she just does that a lot in this movie. She's just like, just glows in their direction. And her eyes are just so like, oh, I have so many feelings. And you're like, yes, she is in love. And I think it's kind of cool that actually like there's an, an actress who strength seems to be that she's really convincing at being in love at people. 
has not ended up in a lot of romance movies. Actually, she's in a lot of adventure movies and in series like Game of Thrones instead of in romance movies. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, a lot of people think she was miscast. I didn't think that until, I actually don't think she was miscast, but I think more there was a lot of missing opportunity. I found out that Tessa Thompson had read for that role. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it would have been a real uh, Westworld uh, season two. uh, Well, I I don't know if you can call it a reunion if the show's still on the air. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been very interesting and different. I mean, Tessa Thompson, like, I can totally see her doing that role. And I mean, you 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 know, if you've been watching Westworld recently, like, she could definitely sell the hell out of a a character who's supposed to be sort of uh, equal parts kind of um, charismatic, but also manipulative. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, like, even though Amelia Clark was really great, Tessa Thompson is also an outstanding actress and is not a white woman with brown hair. And I, I wanted to think a little, just talk a little bit about like Star Wars' obsession with like pale British women with dark hair. I, I <laughs> think it's bullshit and it's racist, but I know, but th- there's a reason why they keep doing it with brunette women and they've never had a blonde mixed in with this. They think that they're actually not being racist for the record. They think that they're doing this because it's all the same woman. Like you have, you have Leia and you have Padme as her mom and you, they wanted them to have a visual similarity. And then when they brought up the new the new Ray, they wanted that to look like them as well. And I think that they're sort of trying to act like it's all this like the feminine archetype mother who's also the rebellion. And I think that they were trying to operate at that level. But that's, that's not an excuse for having all these fucking white women. All. Oh, not at all. Exactly. And Kira is not that. But I think that they're trying to, with her, they were trying to do a feint towards that before it's revealed that she's not. I mean, she also sort of, they also can see like, oh, look, she's, she, she you know, it shows you that Leia's Han's type, right? They can say that's, that kind of shit. I don't know. That's weak tea to me if that was what their thinking was. Like, that's, that's not very good character work. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. And um, I don't think that it's okay to uh, have this visual like motif be the reason why you keep casting white women in your protagonist roles. Like, I think that's bullshit. It's racist. Um, and they need to stop it. But I think that they think they're doing something serious. You know, like I think that they think this is an art, this is an artistic decision. I really do. And that's why it's never been a blonde. They think that this is an artistic decision, but it's actually just playing out as racism. It's so bizarre. So it's not only that there's virtually no black people in the galaxy, but apparently, like, the only hair color for women is brown. Now, statistically speaking, that is true. Statistically speaking, the only hair color for women is black or brown, you know, in the world at large as it is today. We just all dye our hair. But um, other things, I mean, myself included. But, um, but yeah, so that's a thing. Um, yeah, and I'm just frustrated about that. Like, again, I don't think that – I don't think you need to say that Amelia Clark did a bad job in order to say that it would have been better to have a woman of color in that role, especially someone of Tessa Thompson's caliber. Um, but yeah. I mean, it certainly would have been things, more different. Like, you know, I, yeah. I think Amelia Clark did a, a great job with the role, but it is a very, you know, classic, not always in a bad way, but a very classic uh, femme fatale, mm-hmm. you know, kind of uh 
role. And, you know, I mean, you know, if any genre is, you know, has these uh, issues with, you know, hair color and, and race as well, you know, noir does not tend to have a lot of people who are uh, not white in it as main characters either. Uh, with yeah, the yeah, there's, another, there's a number of like Latinas who get cast as white characters or who yeah, are playing Latinas but are kind of like um, lampshaded as but, I was going to yeah. say the the one exception that that um, comes to my mind is um, uh, Denzel Washington in Devil in a Blue Dress, although in that case it's a, a woman of color who is passing. So mm. yeah, and that's also like part of so the you story. Can't really, mm. Yeah, you can't really do anything with that. Yeah. We need we need stories to do better. I, the other piece of it, actually, which is just as frustrating, is um, we Michael K. Williams, aka yes, I Omar heard about this. from The Wire, actually played the role that Paul Bettany played. But because our earlier directors fucked up and they had to bring in Juan Howard later, they um, Michael K. Williams was not available for the reshoot. Well, so they had to let's let's be charitable it it's not necessarily the case that they fucked up it you know You're it right. could also be the case that uh disney is very very cautious with uh the creative direction of star wars because they are yeah. not the first and i doubt they will be the last creative team to get uh chucked off a star wars movie um and, no, that's you know, very true. The, I'm just expressing my frustration that this is what the end result of it. But oh know. yeah, well, I, you know, hey, they had the right idea. You know, he would have been amazing in the role. Um, but you know, I guess he wasn't. I mean, the story I heard was that he wasn't available to do reshoots. He wasn't available. Yeah, and I have to say, they should have worked around it. I don't care. Like, I I have a really hard time swallowing that there was nothing they they could have done to make it work. Like, how much reshoot did they even need? at that point good god that is the the big mystery about this project um you know and th- this is always the the case with sort of you know quote unquote troubled productions is that you always wonder like okay how much was in the can and how much did they redo and why and what would the other movie have looked like um cuz you know if they you know, if they'd shot like his whole part and then had to add additional stuff, it does kind of make, you know, and he couldn't be there for that. It does kind of make you ask like, well, is it real? Like how much of this new stuff do you need? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, and again, like this is not a criticism of Paul Bettany's performance, which I thought was really good, but like how much more interesting would it have been to have another significant black actor in the movie? And obviously like some of Michael K. Williams caliber, he, he's just one of the most charismatic people around period. So oh, yeah. I mean, of course that would have been amazing. I imagine he would have, you know, stolen the film. I liked Bettany a lot, but he, uh, you know, I thought he was playing fairly standard gangster. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, one thing that we've seen, um, uh, from Michael K. Williams is like he takes those kind of roles and does something really quite different with them. Mm-hmm. That is true. I mean, I really feel like Bettany's character, he really comes off in terms of his interactions with Kira as this like very classic abusive boyfriend. Yep. Um, where she's very much marked, she's physically marked as his property. And 
she kind of has to continually be worried about his rages and entirely base her life around not offending them. I, I was glad that even within this role of this abusive boyfriend, part of the reason he likes her is because she's smart. That it wasn't, she, she's not in a role where she's sexualized. Like she, he, she's not just there to be pretty. Her abusive boyfriend wants her there because she's good at her job. Yeah, and you know that's, what I mean? that's unusual because, it is, you know, it is. he's clearly his enforcer. Like, she's been trained as an assassin, you know, and she yeah. helps run his business. And it's like, that's, you know, that is a lot to put on someone you are also going to give a very good incentive to want you dead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think that I necessarily... I'm not actually even saying necessarily that like there would have been a traditional like the I'm not I don't think that they were having sex for example I, it's not that but his behavior towards her is that kind of abusive behavior yeah um, you know incredibly physically possessive like that yes. touch of him holding the back of her her neck was really creepy yeah exactly and I think it's I think it's I think it was smart of the movie to not make it be handled differently and at no point do you ever think that she genuinely has feelings for him um thank goodness because she could make bad decisions for her own reasons but also they're they're decipherable decisions like because she was the one who was left behind on the horrible planet sorry Corellion or whatever um she had a different set of experiences than Han did and that shaped the sort of decision she felt like she had to make because she yeah. didn't escape. And, and the movie really emphasized that. Especially what happened as they escaped, right? You know, mm-hmm. you definitely get the sense that the alternative to, you know, getting in with the, um, uh, the military and Dawn, oh. you know, that mm-hmm. like if, if, you know, she hadn't gotten in bed with them, right. That the, the gangster woman who had raised them, who they'd just ripped off, have killed her yeah i mean i really i I do want to talk about that that's the scene the movie is everybody just talks yes the movie is a series of heists it's a series of chases and that makes a lot of sense for a han solo movie but i thought that the scene at the immigration station was incredibly timely and impactful to me um you seeing these families just begging to have the identification they need to be able to escape the arbitrariness of it all the corruption mm-hmm. at the border and the families being torn apart and watching this the same week that the news was finally paying attention to a reality we've been talking about for a long time in which the U.S. immigration policy is literally dividing families at the border and everything is like super freaking World War II right now. Um, seeing that in the movie was really powerful emotionally, more so than I think people have given it credit for. Mm-hmm. And then after, And then after Han Solo gets it through the other side, what are his options? His only options are joining the military. And the military yeah. propagation, propaganda sign of become a part of something, join something as a great Bring contrast. Bring order to the galaxy. Oh, I mean, it's great to see like what this is how they recruit. And that is how they recruit. And most people who join the military are doing it because they're desperate, not because they're violent. Um, and we need to give people options that don't involve risking their lives and the lives of others. Um, you but it's yeah they really show you like yes this is why people are forced to enlist he has no what he has he doesn't have other choices really yeah. especially speaking because he's of, on the run yeah speaking of enlistment i i have to say one of my like uh 
kind of niggling problems with the early part of the movie is I thought it was a, a kind of a strange decision to never show him in flight school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and instead to show him as uh, a sort of a grunt, a, grunt. a sub, I don't know that a he sub was storm school. I don't know that no, he was well, in flight school. He, he said Ever. he got kicked out for, for uh, being too independent minded. Mm. And I was like, but that's a great character beat. And especially because, the rest of the movie is about him being this amazing pilot. You know, mm-hmm. that matters a lot more than him, you know, running around, you know, a, a trench planet. Like, I, I feel like they could have done the same, um, you know, uh, like uh, him linking up with the gangsters uh, or gangsters, uh, you know, the, the sort of the crew. Um you know, with him being a low-level shuttle pilot who's pissed off or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just that... Uh, I mean, granted, they did need to find some way of getting him and Chewbacca together, which I quite liked. Um, but other oh, than that, God, that yeah. sort of trench sequence didn't really do it for me. Well, I think the trench sequence sort of was supposed to be a juxtaposition of like, but here's the reality of war. But like, you know, we actually kind of know... I don't know that we'd had a grunt side view of fighting for the empire for much long. We only had a bit of a glimpse of that for the stormtroopers in the beginning of the force awakens. But, um, yeah, no, I think it's a good point you raised. I do. Uh, the other thing is like the, um, I'm sorry. I just lost my train. Uh, the, with, 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 I really thought that like the breaking the families apart, moments from those scene and seeing it from the other characters. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. Like I just was really emotionally affected by it. And you, and when you see him talking to the uh, enlistment office and he's asked like, what's his, you know, what's your surname? And he doesn't have one. And they ask who is his people? And he says, I have no people. And so the, it's such it, the, the, the enlistment officer actually comes off as kindly in that moment in a way that I don't even quite know how to, how to reconcile. But um but definitely means that the name Solo carries more weight as something yeah. that he has invented, um, that was invented for him, really, but that he holds on to. Yeah, although, as you know, as uh, someone uh, pointed out, uh, I was listening to a podcast, because Han mentions his dad, um, mm-hmm. it was... He like did have a last how, name, yeah. He did have a last name, so, you know... Probably. It, it would have been I mean, uh, a slightly... different, but yeah. Yeah, it would have been a slightly different scene i think if uh he'd chosen the name himself you know if it had been like you know what, what's your last name oh me uh i'm a uh, solo you know just yeah. as one sort of one more uh kind of improvised con in a whole lifetime of improvised cons <laughs> um there are definitely were some other very political moments in the movie like i want to talk about the reveal on the very, very Bedouin planet of who the Raiders really were. Um, I mean, I think that there was probably more black actors in the background of that scene than there have been in a Star Wars movie before. Um, yeah, and it's a very sparsely populated binary planet. I, I was one, wondering uh, to what extent um, uh, Donald Glover played a role in that, just because there was the really pointed SNL sketch. And I was like, well, you know, you can have at least one planet of black people in Star Wars now. 
It just happens to be a planet that's an oil refinery and is very underpopulated. Um, but I like the cultural specificity of that. I thought it was attractive in that way. And yeah, then, nice. um, and but then we have the reveal of the of the raider. You find her. Apparently, her name is Enfi's Nest. Um, and she pulls off her helmet. I just thought she looked like the daughter of Beckett and Val. Yes, I was I like, is that Beckett and Val's too. daughter? I, I mean, yeah, I, I, was, I yeah. don't know if the timing would have worked, or they needed to set up that like they had a daughter, but in which case, like, why was she trying to kill her parents? Yeah, uh, I, in I'm the, glad in that the it's train not. heist scene. I, I'm glad that it's not their daughter. I just I wish there'd been some way for that to be a lot for like that to be, have been more visually clear that that is definitely not. But, um, but that actress was like so young and really interesting. And I really loved the, uh, you know, whenever they flip your, your assumptions about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and you're the, the Raiders are actually the ones fighting to fund the rebellion and that the way that the uh, gang, the Beckett gang has been in cahoots is actually been colonialism actually even though that's not what they felt like they were in for they're they, they act like they're just in it to be able to eat but they're actually contributing to the suppressive system that is hurting other people um i thought that that was a really good reveal i appreciated that mm-hmm. i mean i feel like we can't uh you know talk about politics without talking about uh l337 definitely stole the show I mean, like I literally put her in the blurb for this episode because she she is that big. I it's the fighting for droid liberation and autonomy is really a thing that I'm surprised that nobody thought to do sooner. I'm sure that in the extended universe there was probably a fair amount written about it, although I really don't know. Do you? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like it comes up. Um, I mean, people have been talking about it since the original trilogy, I think, because. You know, the moment that you establish that droids are sentient beings, but that, you know, they're and and not just, you know, machines that people can buy and that, you know, you can take their free will away by slapping a restraining bolt on them. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, R2-D2 is just so clearly, you know, not merely alive, but independent and rebellious that, uh-huh. you know, you can't, you know any of the rationalizations that people use on Westworld just don't hold. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've never had it as explicit as this. I mean, her personality is so wonderful and I really appreciate that. I, gosh, when L3 goes and tries to have, and has girls with Kira about Lando being in love with her. I, and it sort of first comes off like a joke. But it's like, no, it's entirely possible that, that it's real. And I really appreciate that it's entirely possible that, it, that, that she was right and that he did love her romantically. Yeah. He certainly loved her as a person, right? He certainly loved yes. her as a, as a partner, um, um, but possibly loved her romantically even. And yeah, I, just, I mean, like, I thought that... The idea that that the... wasn't just a joke is like, that like no, like we are in a world in which we recognize that people who don't necessarily look like humans are still also people. And that right. it's very powerful. I mean, I, I have a feeling that, or sorry, um, my reading of the line where she said like, you know, humans and droids, it can work. I was like, Oh, so they are 
Like maybe it's more well, yeah, one-sided. Says, How does that work? And she says it works. So, yeah, I was like, oh, so they have fucked. Um, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that Dave fucked. It means that it means that robots and humans can have sex. In sure, some way. I was just that was my reading in the moment. Yeah, yeah, but I just was like, yes, I want you to acknowledge that Lando, like the seducer of the galaxies, like ah oh, yes, this robot. I love her for her mind. <laughs> um, I mean, I I was really sad when she died and the idea that she, you know, she died like liberating her people and fighting to liberate her people, but she's basically trapped in the ship. Now she's the ship's brain. And so on one hand you're like, Oh, well now she's free to roam the stars. It's like, no, shut up. She doesn't really have autonomy. It really does. Well, suck. It it, except tragedy. that, you know, think about the millennium Falcon in the original trilogy, right? It's this incredibly temperamental computer that doesn't respond or this incredibly temperamental machine that doesn't respond to uh, C-3PO that has a will of its own, that, you know, it works and it doesn't. And like Han Solo talks to it like a female spirit. Um, so I don't know. I kind of like the that idea that true. like her, her ghost is sort of uh, a benign presence in the Millennium Falcon. It is. And it's better than death, but it's like, you know, I, I just don't think that it's, I don't quite view it quite so suddenly, but um, especially because she was in the middle of like really starting this like robot freedom movement. And um, I'm glad that they gave Chewbacca an opportunity to participate that in as well. His saying, Chewbacca saying goodbye to the other Wookiee who was the one he first stepped in front of to help free was incredibly powerful. And it's just like a second of time that you spend with them seeing that. Yeah. You know, I was really glad uh, in general what they did with, uh, Chewbacca in uh, in this movie because he's given a lot to do. Um, I thought that, you know, if we're talking about sort of character relationships that really did work, like, I bought Han and Chewbacca's friendship immediately. Um, yeah. You know, and there's all the jokes, but, you know, he knows how to fly. He's been, you know, he's 190. Um, you know, and that it's... it's um, a reciprocal relationship that like hand goat not only saves Chewie's life personally, although, you know, there's a whole kind of uh, long trope history of the life debt and the noble savage kind of thing. But um, that like Han not only does this, but goes out of his way to, you know, help Chewie before Chewie helps him uh, when they're in Kessel, I thought was Mm -hmm. really good. It's like, it's not just hand kind of endlessly mooching off of, you know, this, uh, this Wookiee for muscle, he's actually going out of his way uh, to help Chewbacca with stuff that Chewbacca cares deeply about. Yeah, totally. I think it's fabulous. And um, I, I just really like that the way the Wookiees, like how someone treats Wookiees in the Star Wars universe is like a good litmus test for like, are they an okay person? And the same is true for droids, right? Mm. Um you know, and that 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 Han is someone who who learned a little bit of of Chirwook, which I believe was their native language. You know, and people sort of broadly seem generally sort of ignorant about the plight of Chewbacca's people. And Chewbacca's like, no, like I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to do something about this. And him, you know, risking himself to go and make sure the others are freed is really fabulous. Um, and I like seeing the different Wookiee faces there. And um, I'm just glad we had those moments with them. The other important, and, as, and also as soon as they said, 
feed him to the beast when they like tied up Han and they say feed him to the beast I was like oh that's going to be Chewbacca I thought that was the most obvious thing but cannot complain it was obvious because it was the right choice um hmm. somebody said that because uh I wish I could remember maybe it was you uh the, with the Wookiees long lifespans compared to humans technically speaking Han Solo is Chewbacca's cat I mean I I wasn't the one who uh who first invented this. And I believe they were using the metaphor of, of dog rather than cat because um, of, you know, Chewbacca not really being very feline. Um, But yeah, that, you know, he's adopting Han for the span of Han's natural lifetime. Exactly. And I would totally go on a killing rampage in that situation in the way Chewie did over my little kitties. I mean, good God, I love them. So I think there's something to it. Like we have a very different lifespan and culture than they do. So, but we're going to all celebrate life day together on the Star Wars Christmas special. (laughs) Oh God. Uh, Speaking of other things though, that, um, involved singing i the the high-end bar with the torch singers including the torch singer in yes. the jar like oh my god um for for once a, a musical number or not for once but uh you know it's been a while since we had a a musical or i should say a diegetic uh musical number in mm-hmm. a star wars film that kind of really uh landed for me yeah, I was really disappointed with the new um, cantina music, given the source of the can- new cantina music being of freaking genius. I thought it would be better. Um, yeah, but, well, yeah, this- it was, it was kind of weird. It was like, if I recall correctly, I mean, it, it's been a while, so I might be misremembering, but it was like totally instrumental, and I didn't get a like much of a a beat to it, so it didn't really get me in the moment. And yeah. like I had listening out for it um, because I, you know, I too had known that Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, was doing a song for The Force Awakens. Yeah. But you're right. Oh, well, I, really you I really did think this song was good for this. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you're saying? I was going to say, you know, you, you can't, uh, you can't hit a hundred percent, you know, your whole career. <laughs> Even yeah, someone who true. at this point is like, what, a few notches away from an got. Oh, I want to talk about the vocal performances. I mean, I obviously the actress who did the L337 voice, I was just floored by how good she was as a voice actress. John Favreau doing, um, I'm sorry, I should get her name up, IMDb. Uh, John Favreau doing uh, the little pilot guy. I, I did not identify him. I thought he was good. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I was sort of, okay, they're doing like a New York kind of, comedy voice but I didn't get that it was Favreau which hey good for him he's uh, clearly doing great things over at Disney these days I was surprised I really was I really enjoyed the way they animated him as like the stacked the stacked little arms and legs in the coat I thought that was really a fun yeah and you know the the thinking through like okay so someone who has two pairs of arms normally what does their shirt look like what is their you know, how do you, how do you design clothes for, for their mm-hmm. frame? How does that work? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so the, the actress who did L337 is Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And I yeah, would really love to hear her in 
and more voice work and probably other things too. Uh, oh, she was in Fleabag. And Fleabag uh, was Killing Eve. Which is on TV right now. Mm-hmm. Well, good for uh, her. Cool. Yes. Um, so let's talk about Lando. You know, I, I really wanted there's the oh, Lando yes. movie and not a solo movie because I, I don't think, honestly, were any of us really surprised about Solo's origin story? It actually was not a surprise to me. And I don't, I don't watch movies to be surprised, but I certainly wasn't sitting here thinking, you know what Star Wars needs is another prequel about a white dude. No. However, I actually am very confused and don't know that much about Lando's origin himself. And Star Wars needs more movies with black people in leads. So I wanted a Lando movie. We did not get it. However, we, I think we are getting a Lando movie in the future. And Hey. Holy fuck, was Donald Glover good? Yes. Uh, wow. One of my favorite notes, and I think it's definitely uh, left over from the, the former uh, directors, uh, but uh, the self-narration that he was doing and the, mm-hmm. the, um, the stories that he was telling over the gambling tables, um, those are all from extended universe novels about Lando. <laughs> so... Like oh whether God. they happened in canon, you know, is up for debate. Um, but you know, they definitely, uh, <laughs> you know, but they're they definitely I they're definitely sort of a nice nod to uh, that particular era in the Star Wars fandom uh, and all of its kind of goofy glories. I mean, you know, when they cast Donald Glover, I was I was of mixed feelings because I was like, oh, on the one hand, he's a really good actor, and it's good to cast really good actors. On the other hand, he looks nothing like Billy Dee Williams. And is this yet another moment of white people thinking that all black people look alike? They really don't, God damn it. And like, I was like, how, this is just not, like, this guy is not, is not that guy. They do not look alike whatsoever. Completely freaking random. But Donald Glover acted, he just, his acting was just freaking Billy Dee Williams. It was like watching Billy Dee Williams in the past. It was, it, it was, it was so uncanny. So yeah, uncanny. and all the mannerisms. Oh my god. Yeah, I think it's it's really it's sort of mannerism and um, just sort of evoking the spirit of a character because you know um, uh, Alden Ehrenreich I think did a, a perfectly decent role, but like he didn't feel anywhere near as much Harrison Ford as Don Glover did Billy D. Williams, and I think that really just came down to like nailing the the feel of a character um that you know he's just the coolest all the time yeah. so <laughs> i mean i him getting him getting sort of uh the rain like the fact that i'm glad that they don't just keep him in that space the whole time though i'm glad that they actually have han I'm sorry have lando get frustrated or get scared or show emotion or just be completely brought, brought up in, in, in sadness. I also love that he storms off in the end of his ship. That's like the most Lando thing of all. Like, screw yeah. you guys. You did something. I do not need this shit and you did something terrible to me. Um, although for the record, I also don't feel like Pop, like, um, I don't feel like Becker had spent enough time being upset about Val's death. And I feel like I'm glad that they gave a little bit more space for Lando to be upset about L3's death. Um, but yeah, the gambling scenes and the sequences and all of his behavior, like, it's just so beautifully right on there. I, I'm pissed off at the, like, 
I haven't even mentioned the queer baiting yet. Um, oh yeah. Off that they that it's you know Star Wars is doing a thing that lots of movies want to do, which is to get credit for having representation, but not actually commit to doing it when it comes to LGBTQ representation. So one of the younger uh, filmmakers on it said, "Oh well, I could definitely see you know Lando being read as pansexual, but there's nothing on the screen you know to demonstrate that specifically." Um, and yeah, I don't think we should be giving them credit for that at all, that there's no reason to give them credit for it whatsoever. I think that we we're in a positive situation in which like any of these characters could be portrayed to be pansexual moving forward. There's no shut doors on this. They, Disney could start doing this right from here on out. They, it's up to them to make that choice. And if people feel like Lando is a particularly apt character for that to be true of, you know, then that's totally great. But, like, do not give them any credit for this because they did nothing to deserve it. Yeah, well, you know, at this point, I think we've gone beyond the sort of J.K. Rowling uh, post hoc uh, decision. And they're going to have an opportunity to hit it again, too, and watch. They won't even do it then. It's just such cowardice. You know, one of the things I mentioned during the Deadpool episode, actually, was that as awesome as it was to have Deadpool have two lesbian, well, actually don't know how they identify, but two queer female characters in relationship with each other, um, it would be really easy to just change the words coming out of their mouth in China and have that not be a couple because they don't kiss. Yeah. Although that's a limitation... If doing it half, if doing it like that is the only way that we are able to get LGBTQ representation in here, then that's still better than nothing. But it's sad yeah. as hell. I would still, I would still rather them squeeze it in that way than not have it at all. But it's just an insult. But in the future, they think we don't exist, apparently, and that they think that you know, it's just beyond belief to imagine. Mm. Um. I do want to talk about uh, Lando's outfits also. There was a... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah capes are fabulous. Kara totally does a great job of co-opting one of his capes. In the, am, am I wrong in thinking that there was one cape in there that was a Hawaiian shirt cape? Because I thought I spotted yeah. it, but it was, so it was, was when they were was, making out in the cape room, and um, I couldn't tell. So there is a cape that has a print a smaller pet of print on it. And I couldn't quite tell what the print was of, but I really do want to know. Uh. I actually want to just say, actually just generally the costuming and art direction on the movie were really good. I think that they were better than the most recent movies for sure. I mean, yeah. the Kino world's art direction was really stunning. Um, but this is, this art direction was just really, really out of the, out of the box. You know, also the, the cinematographer has been getting a lot of attention and, divisive in terms of what some people have hated it, some people have really liked it. There was yeah, a really good was... feature interview with him in the Chicago Tribune, I believe. Um, hold on, Chicago Tribune, just when the movie came out. Cinematographer Bradford Young, an African-American uh, cinematographer, and um, yeah, that, that's a very, very, very white industry. So it's yeah, pretty I'm, I'm curious impressive whether, guy. Whether he um, mentions like Once Upon a Time in the West as an inspiration, because I know they were trying for a, a kind of a Western vibe um, and hmm. that kind of use of like backlighting, yeah. uh, you know, I, they had I some, I don't think it was particularly heavily backlit to be honest, but they had a lot of dark scenes that were sort of more candlelit if there was in fact a candle to be had. Um, 
Yeah, Bradford Young's earlier work yeah. was, he worked on Arrival, A Most Violent Year, and he did Selma. Oh, Selma was oh, beautiful. Wow. That's a, that is a hell of a back catalog. Uh, yeah. and I, I especially, I want to call out for this film, like one of my favorite shots, uh, even though they kind of turned it into a comedic moment, but the bit where Han is uh, facing off with... Um, Hi, sorry. I, I, hopefully I'll be able to edit this file. Good Lord. Um, okay. So we're so, back. We're yeah, back. so I was saying the, the scene where uh, Han is, is facing down with uh, and his vest and he's sort of doing a, a gunslinger stance um, was just really gorgeous. I mean, you know, it was in all the, the trailers, but mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. it's still kind of like stuck with me. It's just like, you know, in terms of like doing the like Western in space that really, really sold it. Yeah. I mean, all of the lighting in that one was really strong. I mean, it's one of the virtues of doing it on that sort of a desert planet. The, the other visual in that sequence that really stuck with me is the, the very, very ver- narrow vertical sort of tower of a ship that Paul Bettany's character has. And it sort of rises and falls in this very eerie kind of a monolith design. Yeah. And it's almost and, the sort of um, perpendicular opposite to the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, well, very horizontal Millennium Falcon. Exactly, exactly. And it's very polished and dark and smooth. It's the opposite. And um, But it also just really reminded me of the monolith in 2001 Space Odyssey, which, of course, is always going to feel like kind of creepy and awe-inspiring. And it's silent. Like, when it when it floats off with Kira on it, you know, I mean, it's like this, it's like this very eerie moment. And I also do want, I, I also, by the way, like, I, I, I completely think she acts out of fear and not out of greed. That was my read on it. She was scared to defect. She didn't believe that they would win. Her past experience had shown that when she tries to rebel, she loses. And so she decides to do the conservative thing, which is to stay in her role. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, in, I also sort of wonder, like, not so much out of, read but just um i don't know is pragmatism the better word that you know um han is basically choosing i mean let's let's think it through right if she doesn't um step into his role and come up with a you know a cover story right that's her and han on the run from this incredibly powerful criminal syndicate their whole lives and, mm-hmm. you know, this is a way that that, you know, threat is neutralized and to her advantage. So, you know, yeah, it's a very I mean, she, sort she's of... Clearly, she's clearly frightened of hell of, um, what's his name, you know, of Darth Maul, our reveal at the end of the yes. series that Darth Maul yes. is. We, um, we should probably talk about that. I don't know much to say about it, but... Um, uh, Although I'm happy to hear your thoughts, but it was just sort of like I I don't feel like she was doing this to be greedy. I feel like she was doing yeah. this because this is this the safer this this was a sure a more sure way for her to survive. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I I find it um, interesting. Um, okay, so the the Darth Maul thing. I'm kind of on two minds. Like one, it was an interesting moment to those of us who remember the prequels. Um, or who, you know, watched the uh, Rebels and Clone War, uh, 
uh, cartoon series. Um, on the other hand, like one of the things that I liked about this movie for like nine tenths of it is that it didn't. It's a Star Wars movie that doesn't have to deal with the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that makes the you know, and that was always you know Han's like most important contribution to the original trilogy was that he was this. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know. The secular is not the right word, but he was yeah. this sort of irreverent, down yeah. to earth. I think is the the what I was mm-hmm. going for. That you know he's not part. You know when when he's there to sort of leave in it, so that when you know Obi Wan starts talking about you know Luke's destiny, that he can you know snark about you know uh, fan, you know uh, hocus pocus and and. Uh, superstition or no match for a good blaster by your side like that's you know and then of course you know in in retrospect in the wake of the force awakens he kind of has this really interesting character arc for, of going from uh you know a skeptic and a cynic who believes in nothing um to someone who believes in everything uh you know although you know is it belief if you've actually seen it uh you know with your own eyes yeah, skeptics who actually see magic and still say it's not real are a little bit of a weird trope. Um, especially in genre fiction I've where it's like... Argue, well, I was going to say, especially in, in, in genre fiction where like the, the hand of the divine or the hand of the supernatural mm-hmm, is like... Right there. Right there. It's like, okay, you know, once you've been abducted by an alien, I don't think you're allowed to say that aliens don't exist. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. At a certain Um, point, you have to give up the... But somebody has made a call that Han Solo's ability to fly through impossible fields is (laughs) force-sensitive. I've never liked that because, you know, it it basically says that, you know, unless you're a magician, right, then all human excellence, you know, has to come through... Um, being a magician, and I just like I don't know. There's something, especially in the wake of the whole you know, um, M word issue. There's like something great about like someone just being really freaking amazing at uh, just being amazing. You know that there isn't a, a magic story in a prophecy. Uh, they're just you know a hell of a pilot. Yeah, I'm not saying that. I have a strong feeling that it should be that way or not, but I felt like it was like, yeah, he like just keeps doing these impo- quote impossible and uh, quote avoiding of objects going in his general direction. Um, yeah. Okay. Resuming. Oh, character design for the collaborators. I thought was also wonderful. And then once you actually yes. look at it more closely, you can sort of see visual references to a lot of different, like American tribal and okay, I see what um as a deliberate reference there. And the the hood design for that is great too. So yeah, shout out to the costume design and to the art department in general on this mm-hmm. for real. Um is there anything else that you wanted to make sure that we spoke about? Uh no, that's that's about it for me. You know, we haven't talked about Alden Aaron Wright's performance in general. I, oh, okay. Um, 
I mean, not Juliet. I, I I thought he was really fabulous in um, the Coen Brothers movie, um, and uh, I didn't thought he I thought he was like sort of a weird casting choice for this, but I guess I was also just sort of generally like eh, about this existing. Um, I don't know. I think he did a good job. I, it wasn't as uncanny as what what Donald Glover did, but yeah, well, how it did was you feel okay. I mean, you know, I'm. I don't know. I, I, I feel like in some ways that like, as I was saying, the sort of the small C conservativeness about the Star Wars franchise from the people who run it, you know, like he clearly wasn't doing much in the way of an impression. Um, in which case, like have, you know, let the actor do their own thing with the role. Let them, you know, figure out for themselves what they think uh, Han Solo, you know, sounds like and walks like and and talks like, um, mm-hmm. you know. But I thought he did, you know. Look, in an impossible role, right? You know, you know, unless you are, you know, uh, a once in a generation, you know, out of nowhere, um, kind of chameleon. Unless you're Donald Glover. Yeah, you know, unless you're Donald Glover, <laughs> like, who, you know, to be fair, like, did an amazing, amazing role, but like the weight of fanboy opinion, you know, in, in this particular, in this one instance, you know, leaving yeah. aside all the other instances when it's come down on him, uh, you know, was, was not as, as, um, uh, as, as weighty on his particular shoulders because, you know, compared to yeah. like, you know, if you try to do Harrison Ford and everyone's looking to see if you fail and fail, most, Mm-hmm. You know, most don't want you to succeed uh, because they have that kind of nostalgic attachment to the original. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to succeed in that context. Yeah, yeah. I definitely want people to, you know, consider Alvin as being a good actor and regardless of what you think about the performance here. But like, yeah, in Hail Caesar where he plays a, uh, like a cowboy actor, basically, and he was really great. Oh, yeah, um, he was great. And the, no question. And the irony, of course, is that there's a, whole, there's a whole sequence of him in the Coen Brothers movie where he's struggling with a line of dialogue that he's having a hard time uh, reciting because in that movie he has a real Coen sort of accent. And the fact that they brought in an impersonation coach, basically, to help him on this movie... Which yeah. is ironic to me because and whereas him in in Hell Caesar he ends up nailing the line when he's allowed to do it in his own idiom. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's complicated as opposed to would that it twer so simple. What does it twer? Yeah, yeah. I also drove me crazy in the house theater. I'm like, just have the character be a Texas oil baron, and then none of this will be weird. There is no reason. That well, in which case it like won't North... be funny. Well, yes, I know. But from the meta standards of the movie, yeah. I was like, if I was the director of this, I'd be like, well, our character is now a Texas oil baron and not a posh New Englander. Done and done. There are rich people from other parts of the country. Um, anyway, uh, well, thank you for joining me. Thank you for pitch hitting. This has been really hey. wonderful to have you on as always. Oh, glad and, I could um, help. And, uh, I know upcoming things that we have are, uh, that are coming up. Uh, we're going to be talking with some of the creative team behind cardboard kingdom, 
uh, who's new, which is a new graphic novel, all ages graphic novel coming out um, this month. I'm really excited to have those folks on this month for sure. And we will finally be doing our coverage of um, Legion. We're going to have Alejandro back on the show again because he was such an amazing guest to talk about Legion last time. He's going to join us to talk about Legion this time as well. Um, if you have an LGBTQ comic because you are an LGBTQ comic creator and we have not covered it yet and you are interested in appearing on the show, I am open to you pitching me. We definitely want to make sure that we're highlighting as many LGBTQ artists and writers as possible during Pride Month in particular. Of course, we also do it year-round, and many of my favorite folks in that area have already been on the show the past few months, which is why I'm looking for some new voices to bring up for this most recent month, because some of our regulars have already been and talking about their exciting new works. And um, So yeah, feel free to pitch me. I'm on Twitter, Elana, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn on Twitter. Uh, we are at graphicpolicy.com. This podcast is going to be on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and... Um, you will be able to download it there and get it off of our website within a few couple hours, basically, hopefully not with that long blank sound gap, but we'll see. And um, that is what I have for you this week. So without further ado, as we would like to say, good night and keep it geeky. Good night. <laughs>